Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The New Statesman. It's Monday, the 20th of March. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to the award-winning writer and author of the new book, Who Gets Believed? When the Truth Isn't Enough, Dina Nayari. We'll discuss the uprising in Iran and where it's going, her own experiences with the country's oppressive morality police, and why refugee and asylum seekers are demonized by public discourse and political policies. Dita Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks me for having me, Reagan. So I want to start right at the beginning of your story and have you share a little bit about your personal background and your childhood in Iran and what memories you have of the political situation there at the time. Sure. I was born in 1979, which is right when the revolution happened in 1979. So before that, Iran was a secular country. Some would argue that people are still secular. We can get into that later. But, you know, it had a king and the king was ousted and there was a revolution. And then the revolution was hijacked. And then the Islamic Republic was installed. And throughout those first eight years of my life that I was living in Iran, there was a lot of turmoil, first of all, because we had this new regime. Then and women were put under hijab, forced hijab. There were a lot of new rules of Islamic living and a lot of danger. And at the same time as this was happening, there was a war with Iraq that started. And that went on throughout the entire time that I was living there until I was eight years old. So we would be going to school and we would be sitting in our classrooms and suddenly there would be a bomb siren and we had to run into shelters or school would be closed down and we had to run home. And then in the middle of all this, when I was six years old, my mother, we went on a trip to, to London, actually, because my grandmother and my aunt had emigrated there and they were celebrating my aunt's wedding. My aunt was very young and she had met an English boy and she was going to marry him. And so we went to visit and see her get married as tourists. But what happened was during that time, my mother became a Christian and she was so 
adamant about her new faith. And we returned to Iran and she wanted to proselytize and tell everyone about her, her new faith. And in fact, she was a doctor. So she told a lot of her patients who were often abused women in traumatic situations. And she would give them comfort in that way by telling them about her new faith. So she very quickly got in trouble. So in the middle of all of this, the new Islamic Republic and the war and everything, my mother started to get arrested. She was involved in the underground church. She was doing secret radio. There was just so much stuff she was doing that was way against the law. (laughs) And she was arrested. And there was a period of extreme fear. We didn't know what would happen to her. And then over over a couple of weeks, over Persian New Year in, in 1988, we just suddenly escaped. We left, we hid out in Tehran, then we escaped to Dubai, then we became undocumented and then refugees. I just wanted to talk a bit about your mother because you do talk about her early on in, in your new book, sure. Who Gets Believed, mm. and her defiance and interactions with the morality yes. police. And obviously thinking about the current demonstrations we're seeing against the Iranian regime sparked in September by the death of a young woman at the hands of the morality yes, police. Master. Are you surprised that the regime is still operating in this way today? But that's who the regime is. Of course, I'm not surprised. I think as long as they're the ones ruling the country, this is how it will be. It won't be a good place to live for women. It's not a place where women can have rights and the same opportunities as men. And it's a place where they are not allowed to fundamentally to be themselves, to be, I guess, their full natural self. And women have been fighting this for 40 years in Iran. When I was a kid, my mom, my mom is very educated. She's She was a doctor. She was in medical school in Tehran when she met my dad. And then she had a practice in Iran. And she, like all of the other women of her generation, were put in, uh, put under mandatory hijab when they were already adults. And it was really very difficult to suddenly be told that you could not be seen in the same ways that you had been seen before, that suddenly the gaze of a man is so much more important. It should be your primary concern now when you hadn't really been thinking about it so much before. You were concerned with your studies and your practice and your work and the important things in life. But suddenly my mom had to do this and she chafed against it, just as I chafed against it. And there were times where I think a lot of women have just fallen afoul of the moral police in that way by not being perfect. So I remember once we were in traffic and my mother had her hijab on and I was in the car and my little brother was like about two at the time and he was in the back of the car and he opened the door in the middle of traffic and ran and he and he was a two-year-old running into traffic. My mom just let go of the wheel, opened the door and ran after him to grab him and her hijab slipped back and the moral police was by her side in two minutes yelling and berating and threatening her until she was weeping. She couldn't even have a moment to explain. My child was running into traffic and I had to get him. And anyway, she wasn't arrested or anything then. She got back in the car and she was just shaking with rage. And I remember I I was so angry too, you know, that why did that matter <laughs> in a moment where my mother had done the absolute right, right thing? But to them, they thought, let the kid die. And you ask, am I surprised that it's still the same? Of course I don't. You see, you're seeing what these people are capable of. They are poisoning little girls. They are beating up mothers for defending their children. They are They killed a young woman for having a little bit of hair showing. Let's just take a moment and put that in perspective. These are not good people, and I don't think they are the people to be taken, like, or, or, whose rules should be normalized or taken seriously. Looking like 
back, obviously there's been, I would I wouldn't say uprisings, but there's been mass protests and movements against the regime in the past. What is it about this particular moment, do you think, that's really sparked such an ongoing and widespread backlash of people coming together and saying, no, we've had enough? I don't know. I feel like every time I think about this, I have a different answer for myself. There's a lot of factors. Obviously, Gen Z has a lot to do with it. Gen Z are young and brave. They did not choose this for themselves. But there's the fact that there's access to the media of the rest of the world and to the rest of the world via the internet, etc. And then there's the thing that sparked. And when you look at the 2009 protests, it was about a stolen election within the Islamic Republic. The two people who were running, I guess, were both part of the Islamic Republic. They weren't, there was no really thought about overturning the whole thing. It was one group saying, actually, our candidate won, and this was a stolen election, and there's corruption within this, and it should be reformed. It was a lot of, like, reform conversation. And yes, there's plenty of Iranians who, most of the diaspora and a lot of people inside, who believed all this time that we need a new regime. But those protests weren't about that, whereas these protests are. There is something revolutionary about these protests. And I think that is because it's questioning something fundamental to the regime. The hijab is fundamental to the regime. Some of the earliest protests in 1979 were about the hijab. It, and it was the most visible sign of the Islamic Republic's rule that suddenly the women were covered. And here is a counter-revolution. There's women in the street, women there first, tearing off their hijab and cutting off their hair. If you look at it in terms of symbols and images, it is the very opposite of the 1979 revolution, isn't it? And that's, I think, what makes it bigger, more important, and it has gotten people around the world to come together in a fundamental rejection of the Islamic Republic, not saying things like, oh, this, you know, election went wrong or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's rejection of the fundamental tenants. They're saying we don't want an Islamic government. We don't want a religious government. We want autonomy over our own bodies. We want the same rights as men, but also the rights that other free people of the world have. So that makes it fundamentally different. And I think another thing is there's something that has shifted in Iran that I find really exciting. I hinted earlier that about secularism in Iran. I think there's something really very exciting that is shifting in Iran and changing and becoming more clear. And that is the attitude of the public, not just toward religious rule, but toward religion, right? People, Iran is secularizing, but one could also argue that they were more secular than we imagined all along. There is a, obviously, there's a group of people who came in and hijacked the revolution, but the revolution wasn't about religion at the beginning. It was about being free from the Shah, who had his own oppressive ways, etc. Then a group of religious people came in, they took over the country, etc. And people had to perform their religiousness. People had to be devout and seem to be devout. There's this joke that there's always the Quran on everyone's table just in case the moral police stop by. It gathers dust. Nobody ever cracks it open. Once in a while, you dust it off, but you're not actually reading it. And that's an old joke because I think people are hinting at the fact that Iran is a very old culture and there's a lot of influences on the people and there's like literature and music and a full rich inner world that everyone wants to have. And when you have a society like that, they're not just going to be unilaterally blindly one religion. This is an educated society. People think in their own ways. Spirituality and morality are private. People worship and think and meditate in the way that they want to do. And it's always been that way. But here's the reason we all believe that Iranians are very devoutly Muslim. One, because we have a particular stereotype of Middle Eastern Islamic countries. We lump all of those countries with each other. And we see their government. Of course, we think everyone agrees. We see women 
under the chador and we think that they are happy to be under the chador. And we don't like think of what it means to have mandatory displays of religiousness. But then another reason is that over the years, there's all of these poles of faith and religiousness that people like Gallup and Pew do in all of these different countries. And they always come back. Gallup and Pew have come back over and over again saying, oh, Iran is wildly Muslim, 97% or some such number Muslim. And because these are such trusted organizations, people reproduce those numbers. They don't think about them, but really think about it. What kind of a modern society of smart people do you know who's 97% one religion? But what happens is, so lately, researchers have been questioning that. And there's a research group that I wrote about called Gaman Research. And they are a group of there's a scholars from who were Iranian, of Iranian descent in the Netherlands, who questioned this and who said, you cannot go into a country like Iran and do surveys with people's identities visible, just show up at their door and say, hey, we're just doing a Pew or a Gallup survey. Don't worry, we're not with the government. We just want to ask you, how religious are you? Are you kidding? Are they going to be honest about this? Of course they're not. Of course they believe you're with the government. You got permission from the government to enter the country. But then Gallup and Pew say, in order to have credible data, the way we've always done it is that we have to know who we're surveying. We can't just send out anonymous surveys into the world. So the Gaman pushed back against that. They designed an anonymous survey that they sent out into Iran, which went viral. And their answer to the whole like data skewing problem is that they correct the data after the fact to be representative of the population of Iran in terms of all of the different demographics. And their results have come back over the last few years, have done a couple of massively viral surveys inside Iran, and their results have come back and they have shown a secular population. It's You should read the piece that I wrote for, for a New York magazine. So obviously they've taken these in the last couple of years. We don't know when there was secularizing shift right? But if you talk to people anecdotally, if you talk to Iranians, you'll see that they'll tell you stories about how I just recently felt compelled to tell my family that I never believed this. And then they will all, all of them said, oh my God, me neither. I never believed this. There's been in people's hearts, I think, a shift that's been there for a while. And maybe it's not even a shift. We have to acknowledge that this regime and its strictures were forced upon our people. Were we ever that religious a population? I think if you hang out inside people's homes in Iran, and if you had in the 80s or in the 70s, right before the revolution, you might say, actually, it's quite a mixed population. Anyway, that's, I should say just one more thing, which feel free if it's getting long-winded to edit out. But I think one of the most interesting things now to see about this revolution is all the different ways people are protesting in very specifically Iranian ways. I saw a photo on Twitter the other day shared by the activist Masih Ali Nejad, who I'm sure you know of. She's phenomenal. That woman is fire. <laughs> anyway, she posted this fabulous picture of men in a shop who, after you know, receiving what is the orders from the government that any woman behind the till has to have a black headscarf on. These men were standing behind the till in the black headscarf themselves, and they looked so hilarious. And it's lovely. There's actually a lot of cases of men cross-dressing in chadors in order to support women in Iran. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But I'm glad you mentioned specifically Iranian ways and Twitter, because I do wonder how much of this moment is also about the freedom that social media provides in a society when the culture and the press is limited and restricted, but where social media, you can anonymously share your thoughts and make it clear where you are and what you feel in a way that's less policed. Well, I think when I was researching the story about Gaman, one thing I realized is that Iranians are so sophisticated with social media networks and anonymity online and things like that. I just sometimes post to Twitter and have a crappy little Instagram account, whereas like you have people in Iran doing underground organized chats on Clubhouse and they're doing they're getting together via these groups and they use Telegram and WhatsApp and Instagram and all of these things to communicate with each other to organize. And it's really lovely. It does give them a power that they didn't have before. And the 2009 uprisings, I guess, were also fueled by Twitter, weren't they? But I think it's different now. People have more access. There's more robust technologies. When I spoke to the researchers at Gaman, they were talking about all of the ways that they use various telegram networks and Clubhouse and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff to spread the survey. But then in their most recent survey, which astonishingly, it just came out at the beginning of 2023 and it showed, again, the big question on this survey was, do you want this regime? And the answer was no. But anyway, one of the things that they did, which is so interesting, was that they got television programs to agree to share Not just that the survey was happening, but to share for like three seconds or something, the QR code on television, 
right, for wow. getting the survey. So imagine a television station in America or the UK being like, we're taking a survey about religion or, or about whether you want this regime. Here's a QR code. And then you quickly snap it with your phone and you're in and you do the survey anonymously. That's a stunning thing, isn't it? And that's yeah. and that was one of the ways. And there were there VPNs and things that helped them, etc. In Iran, people are using all the technologies that they can in order to subvert and defy the government. Not to ask you to look into a crystal ball or anything, but where do you think the protests will ultimately lead? I, like you just said, <laughs> I have my hopes and I have my fears, right? So I think maybe the only way I can answer that is to say I hope that this one is it. There are things that fuel my hope. For example, watching this kind of coalition of celebrities from the diaspora, kind of leaders and activists come together and really organize together outside of Iran. So for example, people like Masi Alinejad and the former prince like Reza Pahlavi and Nazanin Bonyadi, the actress and activist, so amazing. And a couple of others, big names in the Iranian diaspora coming together and saying, just unequivocally. We cannot negotiate with this government. They are terrorists. Please brand them a terrorist. Please help us free the people of Iran. And I haven't seen that kind of solidarity outside of Iran in quite a while. And then there's this other thing that helps fuel my hope, which is that the Iranian diaspora was very divided, I think, before between reformists and people who wanted to see the end of this regime. And there was a lot of attacking each other. There was a lot of bad behavior. There were the people from the reformist side who were saying, oh, you guys are just warmongers, etc. And then there were people on the, you know, overthrow the Republic, the Islamic Republic side who were saying, you guys are all funded by the Islamic Republic. You know, there was no winning. Both sides were throwing insults at each other. Now they're starting to, people who were reformists are saying, you know what? I think the people don't want this government. And then the other side aren't saying, we told you so. They are opening their arms and accepting them. And the diaspora is uniting. And the idea of the, of kind of people outside Iran infighting was always just helpful to the Islamic Republic. But now I think this union between, between people who have some power maybe outside of Iran is a really hopeful thing. On the other hand, my fears, <laughs> I mean, past attempts have failed. The Islamic Republic will do anything to hold on to power. I don't know. People might. It's always human nature to choose your life over a cause, because then what if you're not yep. there to see it through? And young activists, students, and just these lovely, hopeful people getting hanged for just asking questions, for being in the streets, for wanting something better. So then I think maybe I'm wrong. Maybe not. Yeah. Thank you for that very honest answer. I really do appreciate it. I realize it's an impossible question to ask. So you are very gracious. <laughs> no problem. Give it an attempt. And I do think find it very interesting because a lot of criticisms that have been lobbed at the diaspora as a whole is just how divided it, is. it has been in the past and how impossible it becomes to see the trees for the forest yeah. because there's so much mudslinging and undermining that it becomes really hard to see to, to see clearly what's already a really murky situation with not a lot of access to Western press. It's really very, it's so hopeful to see, though, this uniting that's happening now. Just because you're right, all the mudslinging and everything, like, what good does that do to the people in Iran? What they yeah. need is for us to fight for them. And they've been very clear about what they want. So at this point, there isn't really a lot of room. Like at this point, if somebody says the people of Iran want 
reform of the regime or people of Iran just want a few more rights or the women just want new veil laws, then I say, no, okay, now you have had your, you are not telling the truth in this situation. But I think a lot of the Mm -hmm. people who were formerly reformers, they're not like that. They're saying, I think that it's time for a change. People are very clearly asking for a new government, for a democratic government. Yeah, no. So I think there is a lot of reasons to be hopeful. I hope that your hopes are fulfilled rather than the fears. But I wanted to ask you about your new book. Yes, please. Let's do that. (laughs) I'm supposed to be talking about it. It's called Who Gets Believed? And it is an examination of just that, who we believe and why. So it's quite wide ranging. I'm not even sure how to quite describe it. There's a lot of things you, you look at in there. Media, there's philosophy personal stories, but there's also a significant focus on refugees and asylum seekers in there. So I want to first ask, what prompted you to write this book? Okay, to kind of pick up, I guess, on my story. When I was eight years old, we escaped from Iran and we were undocumented in Dubai. And then afterwards, we were refugees in a little refugee camp in in, in Mentana, Italy, outside of Rome. And during that time, it was 16 months that we were on the way before we were accepted to the US. And during that time, we lived in a community of refugees. And all that any of us thought about is that we would one day have to tell our story to someone at the embassy. And our fate would be determined by whether or not that person believed us. So we were always telling each other our stories, practicing it in English, or sometimes or translators there, so in Farsi, but it was about the various points in the story. How convincing is it? Are we, are they going to believe us? Is a Western person going to understand me? It was so much stress around that. And then we arrived in America and I thought the storytelling would be over, but then we were offering our story as this gift to the native-born Americans, constantly telling it at churches and Bible studies because people would ask. We had been through an amazing and incredible story. And I know that there was something well-meaning about that. It was also a performance of gratitude on our part. And then afterwards, I had to tell the story when I was trying to get into college and all of that stuff. So subconsciously, I have been interested in this my entire life. And all through my teenage years in America, in Oklahoma, I was very obsessed with why it is it that certain people are so easily believed? Why is it that my mother was so easily believed as a doctor, very respected and Iran, and then she's dismissed all of the time in Oklahoma. And how can I become the kind of woman who is easily believed in the West, a successful American woman, a credible American woman? And so then fast forward a couple of decades, and I had written my last book, which was called The Ungrateful Refugee. And with that book, I was examining the entire arc of the refugee life. And I went to refugee camps and worked with people and listened to their stories and talked I guess, at length about things like waiting and escape and also storytelling. And I came across a lot of stories of just being disbelieved and dismissed for the most ridiculous reasons. And I could write some of it in that book, but some of them were just unbelievable and complicated. And so there was one story that I came across that I say, and that was the beginning of this book. And it was the story of a man called KV who had escaped from Sri Lanka in 2011. And he came into the UK with torture scars covering his back. And he said that he had been tortured with hot soldering irons by the Sri Lankan government because he was suspected of being a Tamil tiger. Now, all of the humanitarian organizations knew that this is how the Sri Lankan government tortures suspected Tamil tigers. And yet 
he was dismissed because the Home Office said, maybe you inflicted those scars on yourself in order to get UK asylum. And they had created this bucket called self-infliction by proxy, which was this exact bizarre suspicion that people coming in from Sri Lanka or other places had inflicted torture scars on themselves, characteristic of the typical torture scars. And they were doing this just so they could get asylum. And they were having doctors put these on their backs. It was absurd. No one's ever heard of such a thing. The humanitarian organizations were up in arms. And his case went all the way to the Supreme Court because what the Home Office had essentially done was created this other bucket of possibility, saying you might have on this. And there was no burden of proof to that bucket the way there is for every other bucket. And they were just sweeping all the rejections into this possibility without attaching any rigor to it. So the Supreme Court, of course, ruled for KV. Now, with this story, I started to think back, I guess, to the idea that, wow, some people can arrive with mountains of proof with the torture scars literally on their backs. And they're disbelieved. And then on the other end of the spectrum, You have people like, I don't know, like the Elizabeth Holmes of the world who come with a flimsy idea and no, you know, education or background or any reason to believe that they are telling the truth and they are handed the keys to the world. It's pretty shocking for me. And especially because having started as a refugee, I I ended up, went to Harvard Business School. I went to Princeton. I went, I ended up in these elite spaces when I, where I saw how much credibility privilege buys you, and also understanding how to perform that privilege. And so I guess it was an obsession. You say, how did you come to this book? And it is my obsession, who gets believed and why, and how it is that some people can walk into a room, perform their credibility and potential with absolutely no evidence, and walk away with everyone's trust. And how some people mm-hmm. can come with it from with their foreign cultures and their trauma and their shame and their and and their fears, but come with evidence and all kinds of reasons to believe them and still be dismissed. Obviously, especially in the UK at this moment when we're recording this, but it's been going on for years now. The plight of asylum seekers is a just a completely frustrating and baffling subject. And the way that this home office is and this government is treating them, they're not even giving them the space to to make a claim or the opportunity to try and be believed. They're just completely shutting it down. Is there anything that you found in any of your research that kind of gave you hope, I guess, for refugees and how the West might change in the way it handles I don't know. To be honest, the hope, I I have more hope about something like regime change in Iran than I do about the Western countries behaving in a more humanitarian way toward refugees. The hope that I have about humanity is much, much longer term because I see the helpers. I see the people who, you know, rally behind refugees and them and provide them shelter and help and hours and hours of their own time and pro bono legal advice and all kinds of things. There's so many good people in the world that are trying to help, but you can't overcome a system that's built with one group's interests in mind and another group completely without value. The asylum system is broken in the UK and in the US. The incentives of the gatekeepers are broken. They're wrong. They are do not match with the humanitarian duty that underlies their job, reason that they are there. So all of these things are baked into 
our society, all of our bureaucratic systems have biases baked into them. And what that means is that a few good people can't change that unless we get into the government, do activism, get money, change the system, improve it. And that, those things are very long term. Because I believe in people I and, and I believe in truth and I believe that fundamentally as humans, we want to help each other. We don't want to be monsters. We want to be humanitarian. We don't want people to die. That in the long term, we will change these things. But I lose hope when I see things like this whole new small boats plan, which is absurd. The idea that you you take the most harrowing journey or and you are suddenly without recourse, you will be automatically rejected or any kind of a law that takes pathways into account. The idea that you have to go and follow a particular prescribed path that helps the UK government avoid you in order to have any chance at all of getting help from the UK, help that it promised in the Refugee Convention. That's absurd. All of these plans are basically designed to avoid an obligation that we have agreed to already, that we have as human beings, as people living in a safe country. And by the way, it's not going to keep people from coming. So something I found really interesting in the book that you talk about is about when people are listening to someone else, they're looking at whether someone is presenting a need versus potential to them. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. Yeah. One of the things, I guess, that I realized, not just as I was researching this book, but as I was thinking about this over the years, is, you know, that we all think that when someone comes to us and tells us a story, that we're listening for the truth. And we think we have an instinct for the truth. And we think that we are very, I guess, good at analyzing the facts in someone's story, assessing whether or not it makes sense and all of that. But one thing I've discovered, I guess, is that actually we're not listening for any kind of truth at all. We're listening for a familiar story. And we're looking for familiar characters. We're looking for someone who fits you know, the credible people that we have known in our own past, the credible people we have read about in stories, who tells a story according to the way we have learned to listen to a story, and who basically gives us a familiar performance of truthfulness and credibility. And then another thing that we look for, I guess, as part of that credible performance, a big part of that credible performance, is whether or not that person's motivation is need. Is the, Does the person need us to believe them? And if they do, we ought automatically suspect them. You know, that they need us, so they're going to come and take something from us, uh, even if it's a situation in which their need is legitimate and we could meet that need without harming ourselves. We still suspect the truth of their entire story just based on that. We are taught to be scared of need. On the other hand, we've also been taught that people with great potential can help us, they can enrich our world, to align ourselves with them is good. So we think about that selfishly as well. We see someone with great vision. It doesn't matter if they have absolutely no way of meeting that vision, we get excited because we have that trigger. We have that button embedded in us from childhood that people with great ideas and visionary people with potential are the ones to follow. So I guess one of the things that, that I learned when I was in business school is to present myself with my potential forward, with my potential first and my need pushed down, hidden as, as much as it would go so that people don't get scared off by it. And I think this is if this is the way we listen to stories, if this is the way we listen to people and try to decide whether or not we want to be helpful to them, that is extremely damning for vulnerable people of the world, for the poor, for people from other countries, for asylum seekers, anyone who's been in danger, survivors of abuse and rape, and all of those kinds of people, because they have need. They have 
a very real need for you to believe them right then. And if that scares you, that is a problem. They don't really have much hope then. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, is that the criteria that we should be using? One thing about the home office and a lot of the institutions that decide what people get, what help people get, is that the deciders, the decision makers, they have all of this human instinct inside them. They're not aware of it. And they think that they're unbiased. They don't realize how much of that stuff is deeply baked and it's very, et cetera. They don't get cultural training. They don't get training on how to listen to someone who's been traumatized, how trauma retains memory, how shame affects the way you tell a story, how fear affects the way you tell a story. They just have a bunch of tick boxes and absolutely no trainings or not the right training or not that particular kind of training that they need. And so they believe they have extra confidence in themselves and that their judgment is all that matters, the judgment of one person. Yeah, I thought that was an incredibly fascinating part of the book. And in, in a way, there's lots of it, it makes sense from, I guess, just a human nature yeah. point of view, very deepest base instincts of self-preservation. What is someone offering you versus what are they trying to take from you? But yeah. in a way, it's it. think about it for five minutes or two seconds. Intellectually, it just doesn't make sense. And exactly. it poses just so many real problems. Yeah, it does. It does. I think it's so shocking that so many of our institutions rely on one person's judgment. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. That's all the time we have for today. Please join us on Thursday for our discussion episode. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.